Hi, this is Chantel Schieffer, President and CEO of Leadership Montana. Views and opinions shared by guests of Listen First Montana do not reflect the opinions of all of our alumni or organization. We are a large group with lots of opinions, believe me. If you hear something that makes you uncomfortable, we invite you to listen deeply, listen hard, and listen first. Welcome to Listen First Montana, a podcast of Leadership Montana. I'm Eric Halverson. Today I'm speaking with Leslie Messer, Executive Director of the nonprofit Richland Economic Development Corporation. Leslie joins us from Sydney, Montana, the largest city in Richland County. For those of you who might not know, Sydney is about 10 miles west of the North Dakota border, and Sydney and the surrounding area has a population of roughly 8,000. Leslie's roots run deep in Richland County. Her family's been there for five generations, and her great-grandfather, Lossie Theophilus Daw, you heard that name right, brought the telephone to the communities of Sydney, Savage, and Fairview. And he also played a key role in splitting Richland County from Dawson County in 1914. This summer, Leslie and her husband Jim both tested positive for COVID-19. She has a remarkable story to tell about that, including their hurried trip to Billings for treatment when her husband's condition took a turn for the worst, and how her community responded to support them. Leslie is no stranger to the medical world. She's an EMT, and her daughter Amelia, now 29 years old, has faced significant medical challenges since the earliest days of her life. Leslie has spent countless hours in hospitals and doctor's offices advocating for Amelia, In fact, at one point after some difficult experiences at Denver Children's Hospital, Leslie's advocacy and vigilance resulted in a hospital-wide policy of practice change. In her professional role supporting economic development in Richland County and beyond, Leslie says her favorite work is helping entrepreneurs pursue and realize their dreams. She's the type of person who, when folks say, you can't get this or that done, her flat response is, watch me. Today, we're also lucky to hear from Leslie about what makes Richland County and Eastern Montana special. From guiding our community through the impacts of the Bakken boom to fighting off COVID-19, Leslie Messer has a story or two to tell, and I'm thrilled to have her on the show. Leslie Messer, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I think it's such an honor to be able to just share just a little bit of what we've been able to do with God's grace. So I'll start with a question about how you are. And I mean that not in the perfunctory superficial sense, but how are you? I am well. Um, I believe that um, right now, especially after coming out of COVID, I believe that I am once again reminded of Um, how truly blessed we are as a family and just very, very happy. Spent a lot of time this summer outside of isolation when we were able to do more things, just really connecting with the four of us in our family and our, you know, our extended family when we can and just really feeling the, the bliss of connection, I guess. I'm so glad to hear that you're that you're doing well. And I, I want to actually start because it's so relevant, obviously, with talking about your experience with COVID. 
you wrote um, a beautiful reflection of your experience and you called it an unimaginable nightmare. You said that throughout this entire ordeal, time moved slowly. We never felt more isolated, exhausted, hopeless, or excluded from life. And I wonder if you can tell us a bit about the story of finding out that you had COVID and um, you and your husband and working through that and then also sort of your what the what the the whole journey feels like when you reflect back as um as as covid surfaced on the on the nationwide front and we were watching people um suffer with this and and as an EMT I remember thinking um this is something I definitely need to keep on my radar I I'm not going to live in fear because we decided um to live with the blessing that each day is. So we don't necessarily live with fear, but we are cautious. Um, we don't take unnecessary risks. Um, so we, uh, when my husband first started coming down with the symptoms, there was quite a bit of, 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 no, this can't be it. I mean, with our daughter with cystic fibrosis, this can't possibly be yet another thing that we have to worry about, not only his life and his health and my health, but then the exposure potentially to our daughter whose, whose body and whose health system is completely compromised, the fear or the concern, the grave concern of that. And so we kept thinking, oh, this probably isn't it. This probably isn't it. And then when the shock came on that it was, then I think there was a gear that got kicked in and it was like, all right, so now we need to double down on the sterilizing and the cleaning and the protection. And we're going to split to separate rooms. And we got into that mode where we just cleaned. I cleaned everything. And um, I mean, things that people wouldn't even think about, I was cleaning and making sure to keep as rested as we could make sure we were getting enough fluids. And, and then when things took a, a, a really sharp, quick turn and my husband turned gray, um, I knew we had to get help beyond what we had. So I loaded him up and we took him up to Billings and um, got him some help with some fantastic um, pulmonology COVID specialists up there. Um, but as I said in that, in that, um, in that article, we did feel people, people definitely respected the distance and so we, we, we really truly noticed, I mean, when you live in a small uh, home county like Richland County, everybody waves, everybody opens doors, everybody smiles, everybody connects at every opportunity from standing in the grocery store line to moving cattle. I mean, we connect. And so not having that felt so isolating and so, you know, completely separated and lonely and, and then the, the, we got into like, both of us were depressed because we were, you know, struggling with this and our thoughts and, and then the unknown, what's going to happen next? How, how badly is it going to impact us? All of that. And then when we got in, when we got him to Billings and he turned that corner, then I came home by myself and had to leave him there. And so then I was even more of a fervor, making sure that when he came back home, being clear that I wanted him to have a safe environment. So really threw myself into that. And it was, um, it was only the prayers that kept coming through cards from across the state or 
people mowing the lawn or groceries just unexpectedly being dropped off and prayers and prayers and prayers of blessings being showered on us. And then the, the peace finally settled in that, you know, we're okay. We're going to make it through this and, and watching, watching my husband rally around so quickly with the convalescent plasma, um, really inspired me to make sure that I could pay that forward on behalf of our family. So, um, it was, we had to, we live in Sydney or we live in Savage, but anyway, we had to travel. I had to travel all the way. I had to travel to Billings to make sure to donate that plasma. And it was quite, I mean, I took a day and a half to get it done, but it was something that I felt absolutely compelled that I had to do since someone had done it for us. I just felt that some other family needed that blessing as well. So it was, it was the very worst and nightmarish of times, but it was also such a blessing and a affirmation of the Lord's presence and, and grace. It's so interesting because I don't actually, my personal experience has not been that I actually have somebody close to me that's tested positive or went through it. So I wonder if other listeners are in the same boat as I am, which is that we just really don't haven't had the opportunity to speak to someone who's been through the experience that you have. I'm curious, Leslie, if you can tell us from your perspective of your husband going through it and, you know, you mentioned his lips were turning gray and, and things got kind of scary with him and, and then you contracting the virus yourself, what your take is on sort of the, the, the way our communities are approaching this or, or even during that time, I mean, July 4th was such an interesting inflection point, right? People were saying everybody's going to ignore it and have barbecues and um, that's going to be the explosion moment. And there was a lot of debate about how seriously we should take this and, and things like that. So I wonder what your take on that is. For, for us, whenever I hear, for our family, whenever I hear about something that could be a, uh, a challenge to our family, especially our daughter, who's, you know, lung compromised anyway, I, I always take heed. Um, I wondered to the extent that it would be out here in rural, how, how, how it would be accepted out here. But I did quickly see that um, it did, it did start making a difference when, when more people were becoming infected and when we got infected, that really changed the way I think about it. Um, making sure to, you know, wash the hands is a is a is a is like breathing for us. I mean, we we all we have always washed our hands, and I've always sprayed Lysol. And so, um, for for us, I I don't want to try to fathom what other people feel or do. I just know that for us, it went from maybe we should to really having to have serious conversations with my husband about you will wear this mask while you're putting in people's furnaces, because not only could you be protecting yourself, but you can protect others in case you don't know that you have it. So we had very heated discussions about that because I was hearing it fogs my glasses up and I can't breathe in it and all of those. And I was like, yeah, but it's important. And so we had some really heated discussions about mask wearing in our family. Um, mm. But he's, he, he wears it more now than I ever thought he would. And he electively does it versus me doing the wah, wah, wah in his ear. <laughs> 
That's so interesting. I, I, I'm glad you brought up masks, and I, I want to bring this up, and I, I want to avoid politics. It's September 3rd, and boy, things are sure heating up politically. And um, But I, I feel compelled to ask this question, which is that, you know, some people I've heard arguing that, you know, masking is this highly political thing, whereas others are saying that it, it should never have been made political. And I wonder what your opinion on that is. For our family, um, we are not highly political. And so I believe for us, um, the mask choice is not a political stance or um, a threat to a freedom. It is merely a tool that we have at our disposal to protect ourselves and to protect others around us. And that's how we choose to look at this. Um, that's just what we have to do in this, in this madness that seems to have ensued. Is there anything else you would want to say to listeners about COVID and anything related to it? I, I just believe that, um, I don't believe it's going to go away quickly. I just think that it's a more complicated situation than what we had originally thought. And I think it's going to need to have some calm thoughts and some preparations to try to figure out how to mitigate this change that this, that this little virus has made to everyone's lives. And so if we can try to find the best way to um, help ourselves and protect others, then I think we should try to do that. Leslie, I'd like to back up a little bit and talk about how COVID is far from your first rodeo with medical challenges in your family. Your daughter, Amelia, is now 29 years old, but can we go back to when she was born and the months that followed and what your experience was there? In, in 1991, she was born in Sydney, Montana, and she was absolutely beautiful and perfect. And on day three, I picked up that mom's sense that something wasn't right and couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. Um, but she did a weird thing that I've never known anybody else to ever even talk about. And here's this little seven pound, beautiful angel infant. And she had just finished eating a meal. So we had just finished, you know, nursing had her burped and laid her down in that bassinet and less than 15 minutes later, she projectile vomited seven and a half feet out of that bassinet and never got a drop on her. And I'm sorry, that's like alien going on there. <laughs> I'm thinking something's seriously wrong with this child. And they were like, no, sometimes this just happens. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. Anyway, I got her home and she kept having sniffles and she got, she just never seemed to gain weight and every diaper was soiled. There was never just a urine diaper. And I just really struggled in the first four months of her life, trying to figure out why she wasn't gaining weight and why she wasn't growing and gaining like our son did. And finally, um, we had this wonderful doctor and Amelia got sick enough that she had double pneumonia. Um, and so 
it became critical then. And so the doctor had to look outside the box and, and he, he diagnosed her with cystic fibrosis, but that she was the first one that I was ever aware of in Richland County. And so when I asked the doctor, well, what is this, what does this disease entail? Well, I don't know. Well, what kind of a quality of life will she have? Well, I don't know. Well, is she going to be one of those people that lives in the bubbles and we all have to, you know, be outside of not touching? Well, I don't know. Well, who does know? Well, there's this amazing team from Denver. They're from the Children's Hospital and they're an entire team that deal exclusively with cystic fibrosis. And they're in Denver, right? Or they're in Billings right now. And I'm going to send you up there. So he introduced us to this team from Denver and we never missed an appointment every three months from that moment on, except for 9-11, uh, the year, the, the year that, that that happened. That was the first appointment we missed, but they shut the entire United States down. Um, but other than that, we would go every three months up to Billings and meet with the, the Denver team. And, and we had a lot of challenges and we had a lot of close calls and, you know, there's so many things that affect her. Um, we were told that she would never live to see her 18th birthday and that she had, she was the worst case scenario in five states that she had not only breathing, but she also had absorption problems. She had digestion problems. She has to be on antibiotics every day of her life and her lungs burn so many calories that she can't possibly intake enough calories during the day to get her lungs to work. So she gets fed with this nighttime feeding that puts 2000 calories into her stomach while she's sleeping. And so we have just rolled with every one of those changes and all of those hospitalizations and setbacks. And, and so no, being, uh, we are not, we are not uh, a stranger to hospital situations and things like that. And so I want to build on that a little bit. I mean, you told me the story about, you know, going down to Denver's Denver Children's Hospital, and you, I just enjoyed listening to you so much talk about how you had this healthy level of skepticism to advocate for your daughter in that situation, and and for me, after listening to your story, it's not hard for me to draw a direct line from your daughter's health and sort of longevity um, to your advocacy, to you fighting for her day in and day out in that hospital. So I wonder if you can tell me about what that meant, what it looked like when you were advocating for your daughter. Well, I deeply appreciate that, that compliment. Um, my husband and I believe with the faith that we have that the Lord chose us to be her parents. And for the first, for the first six months of knowing she had this, I, I'm not going to argue with you. We, we struggled. We really struggled. Um, wondering why he would give us this, this beautiful spirit only to, know that she could be gone anytime. And so we made a decision early on in our marriage that we would do whatever it took to raise her as normal as she possibly could be. We didn't want to be one of those parents that just put her in this little crystal pedestal and said, it's okay, honey, you don't have to deal with that because you're sick. We, we wanted to embrace the fact that, that, we know she's special, but we consider her more a special child with, or a, a child with special needs. And so that's how we, we um, approached life with her. And um, so, yeah, we, 
when, whenever we would face, um, you know, like the replacement of the feeding tube or when she had to have the, the, the feeding tube placed or her sinus surgery or any of the things that she faced, we would always talk with her and tell her what's going on and what was going to happen. And, and when things didn't happen, like we planned, that's when I would have to stand up and say, all right, um, according to my little handy dandy notebook here, you guys came in and you took nine vials of blood to run this and this and this, this test. And now here you are four hours later with the same looking vials. And my question is, does the blood change enough in four hours that you really need to draw a second set of blood tests? And then they'd say, Oh no, no. Or, Oh yeah, good, good catch or whatever. And then if it was a life or death one, then I would be, oh, no, you didn't. Oh, no, you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) You need to remember that I don't have, she, I am going to remove my authority or your authority to do any with anything with her until you get me her doctor up here to tell me exactly what you're suggesting is his plan because him and I discussed this and you're trying that and no. It's a, so we've just in this recording and and also in our conversations prior to the podcast covered a lot of inf- interesting ground and I wonder if we can tease something out which is you know you are an EMT and you talked about you've mentioned to me several times how you have tremendous respect for protocols and um, you know it sounds like with your experience with COVID you really leaned on the science and counted on the experts right and then in this situation you were finding yourself in a spot where you really had to critique and, and, um, scrutinize the medical process, the medical care for your daughter. So how do we reconcile those two things? Well, I, I, I believe, and, and my husband and I both believe that, um, you know, the, the health profession is so immense and, and, and they, I have the highest respect for people that are going to, care and save lives of other people. I, I just do. And so I think there's a, there, I think there's a place in the middle where being an advocate for a patient and being a great physician delivering good health care meets in the middle. And I think sometimes we get in our own lanes, right? And, and we need to be reminded that we do overlap sometimes. You know, I've, I've, in my experience in leadership, Montana, I've, I've had some really interesting conversations with people who have children with a lot of medical challenges. And I just wonder if you would mind sort of reflecting on that experience generally. You've been doing this for nearly three decades. What is it like? If I think about the whole gamut of everything that it is being a parent of um, a child with special needs, I have to say it, it has been the greatest um, worry and burden that I've ever had, but it has been the deepest and the strongest blessing that I could ever be gifted with. And that comes back tenfold when she says to me, mom, you showed me how to make a decision. And I called my diabetic doctor and told her that my numbers aren't right. And she looked at them and said, you're right, Amelia. And she said, that's because that's how you taught me, mom. So 
having that come back in that way um, it is such a blessing and it is such an inspiration to know that we did it right and that we um, that we made the right choices and it hurt and it sucked sometimes but such um, such peace is in that grace and in that blessing. So I want to talk about Richland County. Tell me, tell me about your place. We, um, I am, I am so proud of our county. We have, we, we are so blessed in our, um, we have such a diverse economy. I mean, we have right now we have coal, we have egg, we have power, we have water, we have, um, all kinds of scientists in the, the, the USDA lab station, the research lab and the MSU extension lab. So we have the highest per capita of doctors in our whole region. We have a great health center, cancer center. So it's a great place with the, the, the basics, but we have the things that people are searching for when they're searching for Montana. And that is that connection to being included. I mean, when people, when people come here, I, I always hear, wow, this is such a nice place. People are so warm. People are so friendly. People are so helpful. Um, And we hear that a lot. And and it makes me really proud that um, to be able to be one small part of that circle of Richland County life. So that's a great segue to talk about your work. You've been in your role as executive director of the Richland Economic Development Corporation for 20 years. Can you tell us more about that? I've been I've been so thrilled every single day because of the network of people I've been able to connect and bring resources back to Richland County. The differences that we've been able to make um, in everyday lives with uh, not only funding but all, just emotional support. If somebody wants to come in and just talk something through, um, I may not have a resource, but I might be able to point them to a resource. And so. Um, we've seen some challenges uh, when the the Bakken was around. We had to use every bit of, I mean, when the Bakken was at its wildest and, you know, in this last, last round, we really had to, really had to scramble to make sure that we could provide and pivot as quickly as we could to, to, to meet the needs of the businesses and the, the services that were being offered. Can you explain to listeners what the Bakken is? Um, we are on the Montana side of what is called the Elm Cooley oil, um, play. And it, it runs across our beautiful state line and goes into North Dakota. And that's where the deepest geological formation is, is over in North Dakota. But the Bakken was originally tapped and first started in Richland County. And, um, so we do have, we had drillers and we have a lot of, a lot of support services that came in. And then when, when, uh, Williston, when Williston's technology caught up and it expedited, then there were just masses and masses of populations that came to do that work. And I had developers that will walk in my office and say, I am here to make money, 
I am doing my job in Williston, North Dakota, but I will not take my wife and family there. I need to know where's a good place to set up. So they didn't want to live in it, but they wanted to make money in it. And so there was a lot of those kind of conversations about, I, I, I know this is where the money's at, but I can't live there. And so we, we did the best that we could to be able to connect with them. And, you know, so many of them came in, in, in campers and a lot of the workforce came from the Western side of the state. I mean, cause they were coming over here to do plumbing and HVAC and electrical and all kinds of things. So we were supporting a lot of the state when all the masses would come over here to help support the oil services. And so um, these RVs would pop up out of nowhere. I mean, the prairie was just covered with RV parks and we realized quickly as a, a leader in our community that we had to find a way to connect with them. Um, if they had families, if they didn't have families, we still needed a way to connect with them to let them know, hey, if you need to have a hot shower, you can go here. We were very creative in how we were able to try to accommodate these people as best we could. So when did when did the bucking, when did this boom sort of begin? Like when it started and when it was at its peak? Well, it came and it went and I mean, it's come this, we've experienced several ebbs and tides, but the one that was the most is it started probably in seven and eight and kind of was rounding out by 10, 11, right in there. Um, so it was, it was pretty profound back then. Mm. Pretty busy. I mean, we, we must've had, I do a, I do a projected survey of the a bubble, a trade population of how many people, and you couldn't get anything from the census at the time because it was so transient, right? There was so much going on. So I found a resource um, called USPSZipCodes.com, and it takes headcounts based on the number of people that are receiving mail at each box. So it was a closer to the ground pulse of how many people are actually in that bubble. And at that height, we were looking at close to 80,000 people in a 75-mile radius on the western side of North Dakota and the eastern side of Montana, incorporated and unincorporated. And that was the best we could get in that trade area. But you got to remember, Williston was sitting with over 50,000, and they're less than 56 miles away. So, I mean, that was the best way that we could try to prepare. And we still couldn't prepare. (laughs) What was the best thing that came out of that sort of whole whole experience? Well, there was definitely the 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 people that had the mineral rights and they had the 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 influx of the money. They had they were families of generations that had never seen things like that, and so they were able to go forward without having to to borrow money for an operating loan or they were able to pay off all of their equipment or they were able to make sure that their children's colleges were secure. I mean, so there was a lot of that that went on that was really incredible. And the gifting to the nonprofits was just astounding. So the last question I want to ask you about your work is about this this debate or this conversation that happens often, I think, in Leadership Montana when we're able to, you know, enter a space where constructive uh, conversation can occur among people who have very different opinions. And I think there's um, that one of those is this idea of economic development versus conservation. I wonder if, what you think about this sort of this this give and take scenario that that we talk about. I mean, is it is it a this or that or is there more to it? For, for what I've experienced out here in Richland County, I, I mean, we have all these diverse uh, 
um, industries that are out here and that have been here for long, long times. And I believe that, um, I believe that you can have economic growth and still be respectful and be thoughtful in protecting and, and being protecting it for the future as well. I think you can have both. And I, I think that Richland County does that very well. The way that they're reclaiming where the coal mine or the coal has been dug, the way that they're protecting the irrigation waters. A lot of the growers are now going to covered lateral ditches and the irrigation sprinklers versus so much flood because the flood, you can't control it as much. And then there's, there's more waste if there's a lot of flood irrigation versus the, the sprinkler or the covered. And so I think that we've, we've demonstrated that, that we can have both out here, that we can, we can save a place to hunt and fish and, and recreate and enjoy our, our, all of the beautiful things that are here in Richland County and still, still profit and still, you know, grow as a community. So as somebody with such deep roots in that community and then in the very prominent role that you, um, you occupy professionally, I wonder if you sort of feel like a guardian of that balance. Oh, I, I most certainly do. Um, on the other side of my family, my great, great, great grandfather, three greats, um, three. Yep. Three. Okay. <laughs> um, the the irrigation canal was was began was was funded back in the 1900s, and my great 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 grandfather on my on my father's side actually dug the irrigation canal that that extends from Intake Montana all the way to Fairview, and so when we had um, we had a, a case where there were there was a court case where they wanted they wanted to have the diversion um structure that's at intake be completely removed and let the yellowstone river go back to being a free to being completely free wild and un, undammed and so there was a five year battle that went on um for for the irrigation and for the agricultural people and the generations of families that are going to be impacted if that if that diversion structure was removed they would not be able to afford to pump that water because right now it's being gravity those those forefathers dug it at an incline so that it starts up at a higher elevation than it is when it comes out at fairview and it's all flown by gravity so there's no pumps in the actual filling of that structure and that's incredible so um, I can remember several of my board directors going, wow, you really do have a stake in wanting to protect the, the irrigation. And I, I, I'm very passionate about being able to preserve the fish. No one wants to, to remove a species from anything, but I believe if we put our heads together, we can find solutions. And I believe that's what they've, they've done is they've found a way to um, accommodate with this bypass channel that'll allow those uh, fish that need to uh, spawn upriver, it will give them the access that they're naturally trying to go by. And so, you know, we, we, I, I do feel like a very strong advocate when it comes to fighting for things that my, that I, that I was, that's just in my genetic makeup, I guess. 
I love it. I think you just, you just, you know, described a really interesting lesson, like people with diverse interests, really opposing interests and, and finding a way to navigate how to come up with a solution that is sort of workable for every people, for all people involved. And I think sometimes that's sort of a pipe dream, right? And I think sometimes there's actually, there's no in between. And, and, um, so we have to be, be vigilant and, and making sure we're keeping an eye out for that kind of thing. But um, what would you say is like the most important lesson that you've learned from leadership Montana? I'm not talking about the, the networks and the knowing of the peoples and the, and the connect, the profound connections that we make, but what, what skill? I believe that I, the deepest and the most valuable lesson that I have learned from leadership Montana is listening deeply because if in the past, before I had that training, I remember automatically feeling if someone were to say we need to get rid of the dam because we need to have the free flowing water the fish are never going to survive the the farmers are killing it there was a there was a, a part of me that would just literally shut down and close my mind off and I think that's normal and I think that the greatest lesson that I ever learned was staying quiet in that moment and intentionally listening deeply so that I could search for one thing that I could agree with to start the many multi layers of conversation that I could have afterward. But I'd have to listen deeply for that, for that, that common thread. Um, And it, it might start very, very shallow, but it would definitely go deep after that. And so I'm thankful for that um, because I think every every single day we come across the choice to remain open or closed and trying to make sure that you're being intentional when when your knee-jerk nature is to be the opposite is <laughs> is a great lesson and I, I can I count it a superpower now. <laughs> which is just a fun way for me to get your sort of 15 second first thing that comes to your mind reaction to some prompts at first and then we'll move on to just like um, words or phrases does that sound okay perfect all right a recommendation for a place to visit in eastern montana and why i think it would be a great idea for people to come and experience um the vast quietness of an Eastern Montana sky uh, from sunset to all the stars. I just think it's, it's something that is so incredible. And I know that everywhere has beautiful skies. I mean, Montana is, is so amazing that way, but I think there's something about the simple quietness of it that is almost deafening to some people. Something that gives you the giggles. Babies laughing. (laughs) I will lose it every single time a baby does that belly roll and their (laughs) cheeks get going and their little legs and their quivering chin. I I lose it every single time. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Do you watch like YouTube videos of it? Of like, oh yeah, get your like, I'll, I'll do it on the phone, and I I just it just does it to me every time. That's amazing. Uh, the most important thing you can teach your children. 
You know, I think the most important thing that we've ever taught our children is, is respect, um, to respect themselves, to respect each other, to respect the law. Um, and, and I think with that comes, you know, we just dovetail in there with our faith and, and all of that, I think, to respect. Your definition of leadership. Leadership to me is being able to work together and collaborate to demonstrate a, a common direction to a goal and not, not caring who gets credit but being able to shift and pivot and keep moving towards that goal, no matter what setbacks happen. Your favorite way to pass the time on long drives. I sing like I'm a star in my car, right? <laughs> I am a star in my car. <laughs> what are you, what are you singing? I sing everything from Christian to the seventies to rock to, all of it. Oh my God. You wouldn't be willing to give us like just a little taste right now, would you? Oh, Absolutely not. Oh. It's not in my car. Yeah, I know. I know. I pick my nose in my car. It's like a private place, right? We get to do <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> not during COVID though. Right, right. Yeah, right. obviously. <laughs> um, the most beautiful thing about Richland County. It has to be the people. It just, it just has to be the people, um, the, the, the passion and the giving and the depth to these people is, is something that is so rare. And I mean, I, it, I see it in so many different ways every day. Um, we just had a neighboring fire happen in Jordan and a bunch of the firefighters from Richland County went to go fight for the families that were threatened in the Jordan area with that 30,000 acre fire. And so, it's the people. It's definitely the people. Um, so let's move to just some word prompts. S'mores. Absolutely. All for Double it. Them on. All for them. Oh, do you, all right. Do you have you ever done a Reese's cup in place of the Hershey's? Yes, and I've done the Chips Ahoy cookies in place of the graham crackers. Whoa. In- <laughs> innovation oh my yeah. god give it yeah. a all right okay yeah. well, are we talking about the soft chips ahoy or the hard chips you ahoy? can do the hard or the soft either are really good i I'm, i gotta tell you i much prefer the soft ones but that's just me faith faith i think is the number one uh, number one core value that i that i carry through every interaction i have with any person um it's just that I want to make sure that I may never see you again. I may never talk to you. And so I want to do everything in my power to make sure that I'm hearing you, that I'm able to give you the information that you need, that you feel that you're being heard and, and listened to. And, and basically that there's an appreciation for the exchange. And so it's, it's part of, of who I am. So, okay. Last one. Progress. Um, I think, I think that we definitely can see progress in humanity with the new development that's happening on the science level. I think we can see progress with the connection that and the success that we're making with organizations like the one that connected us. 
Um, I think that there's progress in um, the way that we as people are, are understanding our world more and trying to think about more than right now. Um, and so I think all of these steps are our progress and I think it, it, we just need to keep moving forward. I love it. Leslie Messer, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks to Leslie Messer for coming on the show. And thanks to you for listening in. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're up for it, tell a friend about the show too. We'd also love to hear your feedback. Please email me, eric, E-R-I-C, at leadershipmontana.org. Our intro song is a rendition of the Montana State Song by Scott Gudger, and our other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Until then, for Leadership Montana, I'm Eric Halverson, and this is Listen First, Montana.